Good evening, humans. Welcome back to another episode of the Bedtime Banshee podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, this is a show that brings you horrifying but true stories from all around the world. Every week, I will tell you a strange and possibly disgusting fact about a strange and possibly disgusting place, horrify you with an awful idea from the history books, tell you what's weird and wonderful in the headlines, and finally tell you a very disturbing bedtime story. So here we go, your strange and disgusting tale about a strange and disgusting place. Any Londoner listening to this podcast would know it wouldn't be long before we included London in this list of strange and disgusting places. If you've ever enjoyed a quintessentially British dry, sad sandwich in one of London's many open spaces, you could have been eating atop an ancient plague pit used to bury victims of the Great Plague. Victims of the bubonic plague that wiped out swathes of London's population between 1665 and 1666 were buried in hundreds of plague pits scattered across the city and surrounding countryside. As the bodies piled up and churchyards overflowed, victims were laid to rest in these emergency burial sites. A map released recently by a historical society revealed the existence of plague pits in places like Christchurch Gardens in Westminster, Marshall Street Leisure Centre in Soho, Knightsbridge Green and the current site of Sainsbury's in Whitechapel. Other locations include Golden Square in Soho, Green Park and Shepherd's Bush Green. In 2017, engineers working on the £15 billion Crossrail project had unearthed 14 bodies in Charterhouse Square in Farringdon revealing a previously unknown Black Death plague pit. The skeletons were discovered lying unmarked in neat little rows. It was the fate of many of the city's poorest inhabitants when plague ravaged Britain, killing more than a third of its population. The grisly find corresponded with historical documents, including John Stowe's 1598 survey of London, The grisly find corresponded with historical documents, including John Stowe's 1598 survey of London, that suggested the surrounding area could contain as many as 50,000 bodies, with 100,000 buried elsewhere in the city. Around 1.5 million Britons are thought to have died during the Black Death, while around 25 million perished in Europe and an estimated 75 million across the world. Symptoms included nausea, vomiting, fever, and horrendously swollen lymph nodes. During the later epidemics in London, weekly bills of mortality were published detailing the deaths in each parish. When the numbers were high, people would pile into wooden carts and attempt to flee the city. Often they were turned back. The disease was found in bacteria in the digestive tract of fleas, which fed on the rats that infested London's overcrowded streets. Now we turn our attention to an awful idea from the history books. 
For decades, the idea of jamming a spike through someone's cerebrum was considered a legitimate treatment for everything from panic attacks to nervous indigestion. Potential side effects of a lobotomy include the loss of inhibition, catatonic states, and death, which isn't that surprising considering that lobotomists weren't exactly sure what they were doing or even where in the brain to target. So what kind of monsters would send someone to get lobotomized? Mostly people trying to keep their loved ones or themselves from ending up in a lunatic asylum. Before we had things like antipsychotic medication, treatment options for mental health issues were basically limited to straitjackets and confinement. So when the lobotomy came along and promised a simple procedure that could get rid of all those nasty thoughts, volunteers weren't hard to find. Hell, some people even went back for repeats. The world's preeminent lobotomist, Walter Freeman, promised that a lobotomy gets them home. And for the most part, he was right. A lobotomized patient might come back with the sparkling personality and wit of a zombie and needing to relearn how to use the toilet, but hey, they came back. Oh, except the 13% who ended up worse or the 3% who died. But lots of people still like those chances better than what they faced in a mental hospital. And who do we have to thank for this legacy? In 1935, the Portuguese neurologist Igas Moniz believed that patients with obsessive behavior were suffering from fixed circuits in the brain. His original lobotomy technique was adapted by others, but the basic idea remained the same. Surgeons would drill a pair of holes into the skull, either at the side or top, and push a sharp instrument, a leucotome, into the brain. The surgeon would sweep this from side to side to cut the connections between the frontal lobes and the rest of the brain. From the early 1940s, it began to be seen as a miracle cure in the UK, where surgeons performed proportionately more lobotomies there than even in the US. Lobotomies thus became a mainstream part of psychiatry, with more than a thousand operations a year in the UK at its peak. Lobotomies only went out of style in the 1950s, when less invasive, cheaper antipsychotic drugs such as Thorazine were introduced. Now for one of the stranger stories making the headlines this week. A man has escaped a fine after returning a library book 84 years after it was borrowed. The Shreve Memorial Library in Louisiana told its followers on Facebook that a patron had returned a book to its main branch that his mother checked out in 1934 when she was 11 years old. The book, Spoon River Anthology by Edgar Lee Masters, is a collection of poems written as first-person narratives by the dead residents of the fictional town of Spoon River reflecting on their lives and deaths. So, a cheerful book. Library staff thought it was appropriately spooky of this death-themed book to turn up again right before Halloween, which shows that librarians obviously don't get out much. According to Jackie Morales, the library's assistant manager, the man was cleaning his parents' home when he found the book and decided to return it. He said it was what his mother would have done. Except she didn't do it for 84 years. 
The stamped library card from the book shows it was due back on the 14th of April 1934. Locals hoping to borrow the first edition anthology will be disappointed as the book has been taken out of circulation. Now for the final segment of the show, a bedtime story that will make sure you never sleep again. No one, not even serial killer Dennis Nelson himself, can say just how many people he killed between December 1978 and his arrest in February of 1983. His crimes earned him the nickname The Kindly Killer as Nilsson himself believed that his method of execution was humane. What we do know is that Nilsson killed anywhere from a dozen to 16 men and kept their bodies in his home, sometimes for months at a time. Nilsson's victims were students and homeless men that he met and lured back to his place. Booze and food were often promised. At some point during the night, Nilsson would seize upon his victim strangling him or holding his head under water until death. After each murder, Nilsson engaged in a series of rituals that began with bathing and clothing the victim's body. He often posed the corpses as though they were cohabiting the apartment with the corpse at rest in an armchair as Nilsson watched TV. Nilsson is said to have sought in each victim someone who wouldn't leave him. He kept the corpse of his first victim, 14-year-old Stephen Holmes, under his floorboards for nearly eight months. Then, using culinary skills he learned as a cook in the army, Nielsen would dismember the bodies, often burning the remains in an outdoor fire pit in his garden. Nielsen's arrest in February of 1983 was precipitated by his move to an upstairs flat in 1981. Without a spacious garden out back, he found it increasingly difficult to dispose of his corpses. Since he occupied an attic room, he could no longer conceal the bodies beneath the floorboards. So Nielsen attempted to dispose of some body parts by flushing them down the drain. The approach blocked up the building's sewer system, leading to complaints from the tenants, including, oddly, Nielsen himself. Plumbers were called to clear the blockage. They soon discovered the pipes were packed with bone fragments and a fatty substance that looked like chicken. The source was traced to the top flat in the building. Police were alerted, and when they raided Dennis Nielsen's home, they found suitcases full of human organs and bags of human remains concealed in his rooms. Three human heads were also found in a cupboard. Nielsen apologized to the police for not being able to tell them the exact number of murders he had committed, yet he offered up remarkably detailed confessions as to what he did with the bodies. Among other things, he admitted to boiling the heads, hands and feet of several of his victims. Nielsen was brought to trial in the autumn of 1983. He was found guilty of his crimes and sentenced to life in prison. Currently, he resides in a maximum security prison in the East Riding of Yorkshire. After his incarceration, Nielsen wrote a 400-page autobiography entitled The History of a Drowning Boy, which thankfully remains unpublished. 
Hopefully, during all that, you were feeling sick to your stomach and not taking notes because if you were an aspiring serial killer, it would be a bit stupid to take inspiration from someone who was caught and imprisoned for the rest of his life. Anywho, that's the end of the show and hopefully the end of your false sense of security. In any case, you might probably feel less guilty about not ever bothering to get to know your next-door neighbors a little better. You're welcome. So join me again next time when I provide you with fresh nightmares for yet another week. And as we get closer to Halloween and the days get shorter and the streets fill with freezing fog, all the bedtime banshee stories will be conjured to life and stalk you in the depressing corridors of your mind. So keep your hands inside your fluffy pockets where they're nice and safe. Keep your feet firmly inside the duvet at night. And as ever, beware the bedtime banshees call.